Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. Today we feature the lecture of the personalised century, the 10th in our series Culture Wars, Then and Now. The lectures were recorded at the Academy Summer School and each talk explores some of the intellectual, cultural, social and political trends that shape the culture wars. This week we hear from Tamandra Harkness, the journalist, writer and broadcaster, presenter of Future Proofing on Radio 4 and the author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? If the 20th century was the mass century, Tamandra argues that the 21st is the personalised century, a time when mass production, mass media and mass politics are giving way to customised manufacture, social media and identity politics. But what are the implications? Is the irony of a turn to a personalised world that the person is disappearing? personalised century. This is basically my little thesis. Uh, I am, as Jim says, in the process of trying to make this into a book. So any thoughts you have, uh, any criticisms, anything I've left out, anything you think I should put in, anything I've got wrong, really, really welcome hearing about that uh, when I finish speaking. So what do I mean by the personalised century? I've also given it a subtitle, which I hope is some hint, how identity drives the digital age. I started off Coming at this from the angle of technology, because I spend a lot of time looking at and writing about the interactions between technology and society, and then I ended up looking at why things are happening the way they're happening. But I'm going to start off just by describing the world I think we live in. Uh, and the world I think we live in is this. Imagine a shop that only sells clothes suited to you. Well, now you don't have to. This is an advert that popped up uninvited in my Twitter feed. Uh, Twitter thinks I'm a man, which is interesting in itself. Uh, but, but I think it, it absolutely describes the age we're living in. What it's advertising is a service where you essentially live in a world where all shops ha have your face uh, on, in their window and they're all named after you and they only sell clothes that you would want to buy. And what they actually offer is an online service that selects clothes that only you would want to buy. And, and this is the world that we live in and we all, we all post details of our lives online. We buy technological servants that live in our house and listen for our commands and play us music and we in short we expect the world to revolve around us and our needs and our unique personality and that is why I call it the personalized century but what the, what I think is a big change here is that the personalized century is in contrast to broadly I mean I'm using this very loosely broadly the last century was the mass century and obviously you could more accurately start that in the early mid-19th century and end it towards the end of the last century. But very broadly, if the 20th century is the mass century, what we're living in now is the personalised century. And I'll give you a few examples of what I mean. Uh, in the 19th, 20th century, we had mass production. The production line uh, was the, the kind of culmination of this, where the, the Ford plant could turn out thousands and millions of identical products. And this is mass production meant that you could turn out thousands or millions of identical products really cheaply. You organized resources and human beings on a, on a mass scale uh, and produce goods very cheaply, which meant ultimately that we could also afford them. But now, if you go to the mini plant in Oxford, they turn out hundreds of minis a day, but each one is different because it's been customized according to the customer's order. So we have customized production. Uh, the mass media, obviously in the last century we tended to share 
uh, where we got our entertainment, our news from, from just a few outlets. First of all, newspapers, and then later radio and television channels, edited by a few people, so broadcast top-down to a mass audience. So we shared a lot of experiences, and aptly for this weekend, uh, the Times republished their editorial from July the 20th, 1969. Most of the world was able to share the drama of the moon landing, and, and a very poetic little description. Any family of the television set was present at one of the most exciting moments of man's history, and they think that half a billion people shared the event via television and radio. Uh, July 20th, 1969, will be remembered when little children who were brought down half asleep are grandparents. The first event of such historic significance to be shared so widely and known so immediately. So there's an absolute a, a mass participation, if you like, but in a very passive way in great historical events. Uh, whereas today, instead of all of us gathering around, uh, in, in my case, the neighbour's TV set, to, to watch this thing happening. We all have our own individual channels for news and entertainment, and they are curated partly by us, partly by whoever we have as our contacts, partly by algorithms that select what they think we want to see next, but each one is unique. And of course, we had mass politics. We had mass movements, and politicians and campaigners used the same mass media to address mass audiences and try and win our support because the masses were newly enfranchised and were participating in politics. Whereas today, uh, political messages are much more often challenged again through the same social media, the individual media channels, and indeed micro-targeted at people, not just because of a postcode, but because of other things that are known about us. But the content of politics has also changed, of course. Uh, and the content of politics is less about the calls for universal suffrage or equal treatment uh, being treated the same uh, as everyone else in spite of our characteristics like our sex or our race, much more about demanding specific recognition for our particular experience. So each individual's life experience must be validated. That's now a political demand. And universalism, if you like, is giving way to aggressive particularism. That I want recognition for my specific experience. So, okay, so we no longer have to be part of this faceless mass, and technology can deliver each of us a personalised experience. So, two questions, really. Uh, how did we get here, and why should we care? Let's start with how we got here. Now, obviously, uh, this weekend should remind us that history is very complicated, a lot of things going on. Uh, nevertheless, because I've only got another half an hour, I'm going to be really reductive. I, I've identified basically three strands that pulled us through the mass century and into the personalised century. And I'm calling them choice, technology and identity. But I'm actually going to start with technology because I think for a lot of people, maybe not you in this room after the other things you've heard this weekend, but for a lot of people... I think the very obvious driver of this is the technology, because the technology is what enables it to happen. Because our worlds are personalised for us, not by another person, generally, but by algorithms. So it's an algorithm that decided that I needed to see this advert for a personalised shopping service, because of the things that it knew about me. Uh, and so much of our lives now are conducted through digital technology, whether it's computers or smartphones, just the, our everyday lives, the travel, the, the way we look up information, but even the way we communicate with each other is more and more conducted through these digital media. There was a recent survey that showed that American teenagers, on balance, slightly preferred 
communicating with their friends by text message to communicating with them face-to-face -face in person. And if this horrifies you, as it did me, just ask yourself, but how much time do you spend with your friends face-to-face -face in the same room and not communicating by text message or FaceTime or phone or Facebook or whatever it is? So we, we do tend to do what we do through the medium of digital technology. And this means that everything we do, even the most casual social interactions, is generating data. But these algorithms that collect this data and build a profile of us and deliver us this personalized experience actually have their roots back in the mass century. They, they have their, their roots in the very crude and large-scale machines that were developed to keep track of masses of people, of objects, of logistics. Uh, this is UNIVAC that, in fact, correctly predicted the outcome of Eisenhower's election, although it was very new and they, they thought it couldn't possibly be correct, so they, they didn't actually give it credit <laughs> until the, all the results were in. Uh, the, the origin of IBM, the, the computer machine IBM, was a thing called Hollerith's Desk, which was an apparatus designed to turn the data from the American census into punch cards so that everyone who filled in an American census form could exist on a punch card which told you various demographic things about them and they could be sorted and tracked. And so all these machines that we think of now as being incredibly sophisticated, when you get your smartphone out and maybe it's got Siri on it and it's got your, it remembers your personal preferences for travel, it's actually still somebody's server in a room somewhere processing information. But we tend to forget that because it's so quick and seamless that it, it does have its roots in these room-sized machines that were designed to keep track of us all. And somewhere, someone somewhere is still processing your data in order to do this. And of course, technology in a much broader sense also gives rise to, to the second thing that I identified, which is choice, because that technology and the mass production, the industrialization, brought immense material wealth so that certainly all of us in the developed world have a degree of material choice that would have dazzled, well, certainly my grandparents, not your grandparents, but the, the, the sheer amount of stuff that we can choose from and the amount of disposable income we have that we can spend on things that aren't necessities is really unprecedented in human history. And this means also that it widens the choices we have in other senses. Um, this, is, this is a view of San Francisco from outside the Golden Gate Bridge from a, from a sailing ship. And it reminds me of uh, earlier this year, we, we made a radio program about the future of opportunity. And in San Francisco, we looked at the history of uh, Chinese immigrants who came over looking for new possibilities. Uh, and they moved to this new city and they could have, well, they, they dreamed of wealth. They didn't always get it, uh, but they, they had new possibilities for their lives. And... In contrast to that, really, for me, uh, I can travel to America, uh, I can do all sorts of things. I, I have immense amounts of choice about what I do in my life, where I live. And all of us really have unprecedented choice about where we live, what kind of careers we have, what we want to study, maybe. Uh, but more than that, because society has liberalized in attitudes, we also have choices about how we live in terms of what relationships we have or whether we want children. And this, this is obviously also partly... Science releases us from our biology. Women can choose whether to have children separate from our relationships. But, but this is also part of uh, a liberalization that comes out of 
uh, previous struggles also from the last century. 60 years ago, it was illegal for two men in this country to have a sexual relationship. And now two men in this country can get married and adopt children. So the degree of freedom in, in how to live is, is really unprecedented. And being born into a certain sex or race or, or even class no longer circumscribes the possibilities of our existence and our choices in the way that it did even a century ago. And, and this is one of the things that I find odd about today because what we are actually limits our choices far less than it ever has. So in many ways, I would expect it to become less and less important that questions about what sex and race you are, what your sexual orientation is, might be expected to matter less and less. But of course, that's not what's happening. Uh, what's happening is that the question of who we are, instead of being something that we're more free than ever to pursue because we have material choice and social choice, is actually posed more and more in terms of what we are, of what boxes we tick or what badges we wear to tell other people how to treat us. Uh, in, a very striking example of this for me was last month in June 2019. It was Pride Month and Budweiser were the sponsors and they produce all these cups. So, you know, the rainbow has long been a symbol of gay liberation and that kind of idea that you know, people are all different and, and it's fine. But you actually got a rainbow of rainbows with Budweiser. So you could... Uh, if you're if you're asexual, you could choose black. If you're grayer sexual, which means you only feel attraction sometimes, isn't that everybody? Uh, you you can choose grey. Uh, or if the same gender attraction, you choose magenta. But of course, it's LGBTQ plus, so it's, it's gender identity is also a potential source of pride. So you can have pink for pink for female, blue for male, or yellow if your gender goes beyond binary. So. Instead of transcending those social categories that used to hold back our grandparents and forebears, we're very keen to claim the social categories that we belong to. We, we really want to claim the box that we fit into. And if the box that we want isn't on offer, we feel aggrieved. We feel that our rights have somehow been infringed. Now, now I say we, obviously this is the kind of the royal social hypothetical we. You may be someone like me who doesn't really feel that they have an identity that defines them. Um, I mean, for example, I don't identify as a woman. I am a woman, but I don't identify as a woman in that I don't feel it really defines something important about who I am. I mean, it's an accident of birth. It's probably had some influence on the options that were open to me and so on, but it doesn't, it, it's not central to my sense of self. But if you, if you feel the same as that, welcome to our own minority group. Because I, I think we're a dying breed here. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of people, especially younger people, genuinely feel psychological pain when their identity isn't acknowledged and recognized by others. And that's why if you use the wrong pronoun, you misgender somebody, uh, you, it's not only a social faux pas, it, people will really complain. It can get you banned from Twitter, which is ironic because Twitter misgendered me and inferred that I was a man. Uh, and I, perhaps I should identify as GNC, which is gender non-conforming, because even not fitting into a box is itself a box <coughs> today. But, but I think, I mean, as we've discussed over this weekend and previously, many people do feel that their identities, the identity they belong to, expresses something really innate to them. That's their, their essence and their inner self. But also that the freedom to define their identity and to say this is the category that I belong to is 
is a social and political right that wider society must acknowledge and defend. So it's both an, our, our authentic inner essence and an expression of our freedom to choose who we want to be. And it's both belonging to a group and proof of how unique an individual we are. So it's, it's really paradoxical and, and difficult idea, I think. So how did we get to this point where identity is so central to how we relate to the world and how we live our lives? Because in, you know, in some senses, the question, who am I, is a really old question. But I think the way we answer it today is quite unique. And I also think it emerges very directly out of the mass century. Now, there was a lot of good things about being part of a mass, right? because by being part of something so much bigger than themselves, people could achieve amazing things, like putting men on the moon, getting votes for women. All these things depended on being part of a mass in some ways. But it also depersonalized people and sorted them into categories and turned them into numbers. Uh, obviously, in the 19th and 20th centuries, our social experience of life was transformed by industrialization, that brought people together en masse as part of mass production, and then also through population scale initiatives about healthcare, education, welfare, the things we've, we've discussed before. Uh, a lot of this was good. I mean, healthcare and sanitation doubled life expectancy within a few generations. Child mortality went down from 40% to 4% in the UK. Uh, literacy today is the norm. Hot water and central heating is the norm. This has not been the case for very long. So a lot of these mass scale things were, were really good and really beneficial. Uh, but they did also involve turning us, uh, turning most people into part of a mass. And again, as we have discussed in certainly in previous academies, the lower classes, uh, having been treated as an inferior race, were viewed with some suspicion when they started to join together as part of a mass. And the very facelessness that slightly dehumanize them in their own experience was seen as a, as a threat by the by the upper classes. Um, the, the great quote from in, The Intellectuals and the Masses by John Carey, where he, he talks about the panic that the threat of the masses aroused. So when governments were trying to improve the lives and possibly the characters of the masses with these mass programs, there was also a sense they were trying to impose some order <laughs> on potentially dangerous disorder. And so when they introduced bureaucracies to keep track of people, uh, that was not only a, a practical measure, but also a sense of, you know, we, we'd like to know where people are and what they're up to and, and have a way of, of exercising some control. Now, obviously, human beings still had social relationships and lived in families and neighbourhoods um, and so on and, and formed new social bonds, having been brought together in, in masses in new urban settings and in workplaces. Uh, there were trades unions and so on as a kind of bottom-up counterpoint to the, to the bureaucracy. But those, those kind of social structures were eroded by the experience of being part of a mass, treated as bureaucracies, big, uh, big top-down um, initiatives and systems. And, uh, and, and also the, the fact that the state took over some of these services and the fact that there was more freedom of mobility loosened some of those social ties as well. And, and as those interpersonal ties loosened, individuals were more vulnerable to the forces of mass society because when fewer people know your name, you do feel more like a number. And sometimes being an individual doesn't necessarily mean more autonomy. It can mean you feel atomized and isolated and at the mercy of the, of the bigger pressures. 
So I think our current focus on identity is partly a reaction against that, against being a faceless atom in a formless mass, because we can both belong in a group and also be an individual instead of a number because our fellow group members recognize us as a person. It gives us a place in the world where we can be with people like us and be distinct from people unlike us. But perhaps ironically, as well as being a reaction against this dehumanizing being part of a mass, I think identity politics also have their roots directly in some of the mass struggles of the 20th century because we wouldn't have the freedoms we have to self-define today without those mass movements like women's liberation, gay liberation, the, the civil rights movement. Um, that, and they were mass movements. They were bottom-up, but they, but they were mass movements because they were demanding equal treatment for masses of people, for groups of people, uh, an end to discrimination against large sections of society. But today, as, as I mentioned before, those groups who have been discriminated against, and you know, to a greater or less extent still are, they don't just want equal treatment often, but recognition of their particular and specific and different experience. So they, they don't want to be included just as individuals, same as everybody else, but treated specifically as a group with a, a unique experience. And yet this unprecedented freedom to be an individual rests completely on the, the movements of yesterday that wanted the right for us to be treated the same as everybody else. So I would say that our sense of our own identity as something to be nurtured and cherished and protected is both a reaction against the mass society but also arises directly out of the, uh, the struggles of the mass society. So, why does it matter? Uh, you know, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We've got freedom to express our identities however we choose. We've got the convenience of things, products and services that design just for us. Uh, we want freedom, choice, self-expression. Uh, we move through the world. We choose what we want and also what expresses who we are. Uh, and then the world remoulds itself around us responding to our tastes and habits by adjusting the options that were offered. Uh, for example, again, Twitter likes to offer me this one. Uh, because, as I say, Twitter became convinced that I was a man, I, which I actually don't mind. I was a bit insulted. I thought I had grey hair, but um, I, I don't really mind the man thing. Uh, it, it, Twitter mistargets me really hilariously. It also thinks I want a West Bromwich Albion shirt. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, how often do you have to tweet about Liverpool before they, before they get the hint? But, this is, but this, is, this is another paradoxical thing, is that we experience this constantly updated menu of options that are designed to us, albeit often wrongly. Uh, but we're increasingly oblivious to the things that are offered to other people, but not offered to us. And this is the invisible reality, because you could more accurately describe it as a weeding out of options that you're not shown. It would, it, you could see it more as an automated hiding of options that people don't want to show you, and, and it's not necessarily for your benefit. Somebody wanting to recruit tech workers, for example, wants to place an advert that will be seen by people who are going to click through and apply for that job, and the algorithm would say, well, if you show it to these kinds of people, more of them click through, and these kinds of people are most likely men. Although, you know, as we've seen, they can't always tell. So if you are a woman who wants a job in tech, you're going to see fewer adverts. So it doesn't benefit you, but it does benefit the algorithm that wants a good click-through rate and the person who wants to recruit. So the invisible exclusion in which we're weeded out of opportunities that we might want 
actually reveals the truth about the personalised century, which is that we are not, after all, the centre of this universe. We feel as if the options are being pre-filtered for our benefit, but actually it's us who are being pre-filtered for parameters that we're probably not even aware of. Unseen algorithms are constantly measuring us uh, and allocating us into other people's categories. So, as it turns out, we are still part of a faceless mass, and we're just being sorted into categories for the purposes of other people, all the while feeling that we're somehow special. And when you compare this back to our grandparents being part of an unwashed mass, again, I speak for myself, uh, then you realise that, in some ways, they had a better position, because they may have been far away from political power and economic property, but they were part of a mass. And when the mass spoke, either by voting or by turning out in the streets or whatever, then the people who did have the power had to listen to them. Whereas today, increasingly, we have individualised relationships, uh, whether with companies or employers or with governments. And so we don't have that, that kind of leverage. Now, I, I don't want to oversell this. I know there has been a lot of panic in the last few years about political micro-targeting, uh, which suggests that we are all at the mercy of manipulation by behavioural science and, and technology. And, of course, we are human and we're therefore born awkward and we resist these things. And the last few years have also shown that we're quite capable of willfully surprising people who thought that they could count on us behaving in a certain way. So we, we defy and baffle these efforts to influence us. I don't want to oversell the, the power of the technology to manipulate us in that way at all. Uh, but it does worry me that although we, we're quite good at resisting specific cases about this, we do seem to embrace the underlying trend towards having this personalised, individuated <coughs> relationship with the world in general. So, uh, so why? What, what is it that makes us stick with it kind of throughout everything? How am I doing for time? You're doing very well for time. You've got about 15 minutes. Good, excellent. Okay, so uh, digital narcissism is my answer. Because everybody needs a few catchy phrases if they're trying to sell a book idea. Uh, so who loves multiple choice personality tests and quizzes? Everybody, of course, of course we do. We leap at the chance to find out which 18th century philosopher we are. Or, in my case, which Disney villain are you? I am Ursula from The Little Mermaid, which is apparently really cool. Yeah, of course we love it, because we, we, we never get tired of finding out more about ourselves and how fascinating we are, even if we know that our unique specialness is just being recognised by an automated computer programme. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's better than nothing, isn't it? And that, and that is why the personalisation is so seductive, because it's not just about convenience and efficiency. You know, that, that is there, but what it's really touching on, when, when you get to personalise your mini... Yes, you are going to express your personality through the medium of choosing seat fabric, but what you're really saying is, I'm so special and unique that only a personalised mini can truly reflect me in all my depth and richness. Uh, Christopher Lash, who again, you may have heard discussed if you've been to a previous academy, he wrote in the 1970s about narcissism as the, the defining psychological disorder of the age, uh, and he was very prescient, almost alarmingly prescient, but he obviously couldn't foresee the, the technology that would be so brilliant at harnessing all our social interactions, our business interactions, our everyday activities, uh, and both feeding and watering and harvesting that narcissism. Because personalization is almost never delivered by a person. It's almost always 
by an algorithm. So what this means is that when our narcissism is, is fed and, and when we get ourselves reflected back to ourselves, it's actually not ourselves. It's actually our digital profiles. Uh, I imagine you're all familiar with this myth, uh, this myth, Echo. The nymph Echo is in love with Narcissus. He's not listening because he's found his own reflection in the pond uh, and he gazes at his reflection until he falls and drowns. Uh, but there, there are differences between uh, the myth of Narcissus and what happens today because he, he fell in love with his reflection, which was a very poor love object because it could only mirror what he did. Uh, it couldn't think or act independently. It was completely two-dimensional. But what, what we fall in love with in our, in our phone screen, if you like, is it's much more than two-dimensional, although it is also uh, can't think or act independently and, uh, and has no human agency. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's, it's got the plus that you can gaze not just at your own reflection, but how many likes it's attracted, which is, which is clearly better. But it, it's actually... It's more than two-dimensional, but it's not a reflection of you. It's just a reflection of the data that's being collected about you. Uh, and and this, this means that it, it's literally multidimensional in that it collects multiple sources of data. So, for example, why did Twitter think... Uh, this is what Twitter thought of me. So it's a slightly old screen grab, but um, it's decided I'm male between 18 and 54. So it got that right anyway. Uh, and, and it did this based on my interests, which it also inferred, which are actually really correct. And I've got to be honest, if somebody put a gun to your head and said, look at these interests, is this person male or female? You're honest, you know, political correctness aside, your honest response would be probably male, wouldn't it? It would for me. Motorcycles. Car culture. So, yeah, certainly Formula One. Uh, poker, maybe a bit of So, the, 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 basically, we... We feed the data profiles in three ways. We do it directly when we actually deliberately post things, and especially if we post things about ourselves on social media. We do it indirectly just through things that we do online when we fill in forms or buy things or search for things. All that data is collected and added to our profile. And then from those two sources, uh, the data engines infer third things about us that it can't know for sure. It's just probabilistic, but it can infer from what it does know. Hence... Twitter looks at this, it looks at the language of my tweets, possibly the people I follow, I don't know, and infers that I am probably male. And then what it does is it situates you on a multi-million dimensional mathematical model. Because it can put each of your qualities that it's collected into numerical value. But what it's doing here, you see, it, it, it's not a direct reflection of who you are, it's situating you in relation to millions of other people. Uh, this, is, this is just a three-dimensional graph. This is easy. The, the actual, if you, if you could see your data profiles, of which there will be many online somewhere, uh, they would be probably million-dimensional. And it would be things like uh, how many books did you buy, how fast do you walk, how fast do you type, all sorts of bits of information about you. Uh, and, and they will literally place you on an axis in relation to all other people. So what you think of as your, your profile, your, your narcissistic reflection, is actually not directly a reflection of you. It's simply placing you in relation to a population of other people. So you're unique in the sense that you've probably got a unique position on the multidimensional grid, but it's, it's nothing about you and who you are. 
in, in that sense. It, your data profile is more important than you are in this personalized world because that is the target of the personalization. It's, it's, not, it's not you. And your digital reflection is what the algorithms will use to predict your future and by determining the options that it offers you, help to shape that future. And because it's built out of data from the past and the present, so it can only predict a future that looks like either your past and present or that of other people like you. So, for example, others who bought the book you've just chosen went on to buy this other book. Or others who shopped for nappies and beer went on to buy school uniforms, fish fingers and Lego. Others who suddenly started a separate savings account went on to divorce their spouse. Uh, so th th these are mathematical models, so they can only project the future that looks like the past. It, it, it can say 30% of people who are measurably like you in some ways will go on to get divorced if current trends continue. But what it can't do is get inside you and see the subjective process that is happening inside you when you decide that you are no longer the person you were when you got married and you want to explore the person you might become, and that's why you're going to do what you do. Because the digital person at the center of this personalized universe is predictable like planets and particles are predictable according to mathematical models that run on probability. So it's, it's rules based on a universe of cause and effect. And this approach works really well for populations, incidentally. It's, it's quite good for predicting how populations of people are going to behave uh, until they don't. But you know, in terms of everyday planning, like public transport, healthcare, it's actually quite good. But they work less well for individuals because we don't solely run on cause and effect. Uh, we, as, as Kant, when he discussed the idea of human freedom, he talked about the uncaused cause and the unique place we have in the universe where we can cause things to happen without ourselves simply being the effect of preceding causes because we have a subjective life and a degree of volition. You know, we, we may have first impulses and we may follow them, but we're also capable of reflecting on those impulses and saying, no, actually, we're going to do something different. We're going to try something new. And this paradox goes right back to the scientific revolution in the 18th century, when we first discovered that nature had laws and that if you understood the laws, you could use them to understand and predict and even control the world that we're living in. And we are obviously part of this world, so we are subject to those laws. But we're also the only thing in the world that can step back from the world and understand and reflect on the laws and decide to act and change what happens. And we're also the ones who can set parameters and decide what's important and worth measuring. And so this, this, this paradox where we are part of the world of cause and effect, but we're also the ones who step outside and observe it and study it and change it, runs right through the heart of the personalized century because the algorithms are personalizing the world to a model of a human being who is mathematically modeled and follows predictable patterns. Otherwise, the models wouldn't work. But that's a very, very limited idea of what a person is. And, and this brings me on to what I think is the really big problem about the... Oh, okay, good. So I'll just run through the, last, the important bit in the last two minutes. Uh, which is that, although it seems it's personalized, and so it all seems to be about having a person at the center, actually, the, the thing that comes worst out of the personalized century, if you like, is the self that is at the center of the, of the universe. Um, yeah, sometimes it's said that we live in a selfish age, um, we're all individualists, although there's very little evidence for that. We, we're certainly more isolated, we, we're more likely to live on our own. 
but our sense of ourselves is actually very fragile, as again we previously discussed. And I want to show you something remarkable I discovered earlier this year. Uh, I don't know who's who's on Instagram. Yeah, he's saying you're all young and trendy. Uh, so you may have come across this this person on Influ on Instagram, Lil Michaela. Anybody seen Lil Michaela? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, all the young people. So Lil Michaela, she's uh, it's it's not that good a reproduction, but you can see she looks good, almost too good. Um, a lot of her followers started being really mean, writing, going, you're, you're not even real, you're just CGI. She got very upset. And then she posted this post. Uh, this has been the hardest week of my life. Uh, here's the hard part. My hands are literally shaking. I'm not a human being. And she's discovered that her the agency that has been running her campaigns, she's got a million and a half followers, right, uh, is, has lied to her and she's actually a robot that they created. So she has this existential crisis about discovering she's a robot. And all her followers, instead of going, see, we knew you're a robot, and leaving her, all pile in and go, oh, my God, how could they do that to you? This is awful. <laughs> it's really, really interesting. I'm see you it. And I just think this is absolutely fascinating because you, you, you go, who, who, who do you all think is writing this stuff? <laughs> Uh, and then she, so she goes, and she comes back, and she has this absolute crisis. Well, I'm not sure I can comfortably identify as a woman of color. Brown was a choice made by a corporation. Woman was an option on a computer screen. My identity was a choice Brud made. The agency is called Brud. It was a choice Brud made in order to sell me to brands to appear woke. I will never forgive them. I don't know if I will ever forgive myself. Uh, spoiler, she has forgiven herself. She's still an Instagram influencer with loads of followers. She was part of a controversy earlier this year in Pride Week when um, Bella Hadid, the, the, the model, uh, was snogged her in a video, and then there was outrage because Bella Hadid isn't a real lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a real person! <laughs> it's, uh, but I, just, I think this is really, really interesting because the fact that her followers really stick with her and are fascinated and obviously emotionally attached to her suggests to me that she reflects back <coughs> something that people are feeling themselves that they kind of, they are both real and not real and authentic and inauthentic. Uh, and, I, and I think this is, this really points to something at the center of, uh, of, of identity here and the fact that we, we are subjective conscious beings and we want to move through the world and choose our own path. But the world that we're living in is increasingly personalized for a self that is ossified and categorized and there's absolutely no incentive out there to to, to change and to to actually properly be fluid in the sense of being dynamic and moving and uh and be feeling free about who you are because it's all organized around fitting you into categories so we may be more than more free than ever to choose from these menus that were offered but we're less free to change and and i think this is this is the kind of the, the key thing and um, what I'm going to end on, although I'll try to do it briefly and maybe come back to the discussion. So it, because I think there's a big difference between being free to choose from a menu and being free to make choices that then change you as a person. And I'm obviously not talking about things like getting a tattoo or even changing your job or whatever, <laughs> but, but actually changing and developing yourself as a person. And... And, and this is this is another of the I think very paradoxical things about the personalised century that we're more and more obsessed with who we are 
and and our person, you know, and, our, and ourself and the idea that you develop yourself, but actually less and less free to do the things that will enable us to grow and change and develop in our in ourselves because things are more and more safe and controlled for us. We're, we're discouraged from taking risks, discouraged from taking emotional risks, especially. Uh, and stepping outside of the menu and outside the box feels more and more frightening because what we're offered is a kind of gamified version of free, self-determining human life where we have lots of options, but they're all pre-selected options. So they're, they're kind of safe because no one would offer us them if they were really dangerous or terrifying or going to take us outside of ourselves and test us to our limits. So it's actually quite difficult and in some ways I think more and more difficult to step outside of the choices that were offered and go and look for different choices uh, or to, you know, to go spontaneously off script in, in ways that we have also talked about before. Uh, and, and this also, I think, brings me back to, I suppose, the, the, the final point here, which is that one of the reasons it's difficult to go out and take risks and go off script and make choices that we're not sure of the outcome, but they will enable us to by taking risks, test ourselves, uh, and, and change, is that we, we lack the shared moral frameworks. We, we, we lack a, things, ways to make sense of the world. And so making moral judgments makes us feel very exposed because we need other people as the context for, for doing that. And, and that's why I think, in some sense, we need to find a way to get beyond the personalised century that retrieves some of the things that were good about the mass century, some of the, the, the collective shared things of solidarity, uh, without letting go of this, this kind of tempting idea of individual autonomy and freedom. Um, and that's really... I mean, th these are all things that we've kind of been discussing over the weekend, so I, will, I think I will stop there. Thank you. You've been listening to a lecture by Tamandra Harkness entitled The Personalised Century. The lecture is part of the series The Culture Wars Then and Now and we'll return next week with Dr Greg Scorzo who will be looking at the 60s counterculture. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed and if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nesta Sherman who edited this podcast series. Music